Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Probably a good time to take advantage of our quality child care nursery. The rest of you, I want to draw your attention to some things in your seat. We are starting the week of prayer for foreign or international missions. We as a church every year participate in what's called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. Our goal this year is $6,000. Last year we exceeded that goal and we're trying again this year for $6,000. But every cent that is given nationwide goes directly towards our missionaries. Over 6,000 missionaries are supported. People like those in India that we support, those in Russia that we support. Their salary is fully paid, their health care is paid, and so over the next few weeks leading all the way up to Christmas, we'll be taking that offering for Lottie Moon Missions. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8 as we continue going through the book of Genesis and I don't know how many of you have seen the Tom Hanks movie, Castaway. His name is Chuck Noland. He's a FedEx employee who gets stranded on a deserted island in the South Pacific. And he develops this friendship with a volleyball he calls Wilson. He draws a face on the volleyball and he begins to talk to the volleyball and have some heated discussions and arguments with the volleyball. He's alone on this uninhabited island and his only friend is a lifeless volleyball. And after four years of trying to escape the island, he eventually builds a raft and almost dies on the raft in a storm. And then Wilson, the volleyball, falls off the raft And you would think it was the end of the world for Chuck Nolan. He's extremely depressed. He's sad. He's lost his only friend, a volleyball. Now, this is an interesting story of loneliness, of survival, of the human need for friendship and interpersonal communication and interpersonal reaction And none of you have probably ever been stranded. How many of you have ever been stranded on a deserted island? Had a friend that was a volleyball. If you have, I want to see you after the service. I want to hear about your interesting life. None of us have probably ever been stranded on a deserted island. But how many of us, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of us have ever felt lonely? How many of us us have ever felt isolated? We felt abandoned. We felt insecure. We felt like we've lacked direction. Loneliness, abandonment. I want you to think about our theme last week. If you remember, if you were here last week, the whole theme was that God in his sovereignty shut Noah and his family into the ark. God had sovereignly protected them from the flood. God had shut them in. They were secure. They were protected. God was with them. And as we saw last week, we we looked at the whole issue of of eternal security and how this should produce joy in our hearts and, and, and that our whole identity is wrapped up in who we are in Christ and that should give us security and confidence that God has shut us in to his grace. But let's think about Noah for a moment as we're thinking about Noah. 
would you feel a little tinge of isolation and abandonment having spent 150 lonely days on that ark? Now, yes, he's with his family. But what is Noah here for 150 days? The pouring water, the barking of dogs and other weird animals. And who knows, maybe his grown kid said, are we there yet? (laughs) Grown kids, if you will. Are we there yet? And yes, Noah was protected by God, but think about it. He's 600 years old. Everything he's known for the past 600 years is underwater. And he's floating on this huge boat, and you could say out in the middle of nowhere, And yes, he knows that God has shut him in, that God has sovereignly protected him, but he may be thinking to himself, when is this going to end? When am I ever going to see dry land again? I haven't heard from God. The text doesn't say that God spoke to him while he was in the ark. God was silent. Had God abandoned him? Had God uh, forgotten him? Had God left him to fend for himself? Where's God? Where's God? And maybe you felt like that. Maybe you felt the deep feelings of isolation. And maybe you thought to yourself, where's God in the middle of my problem? Where's God in the middle of this? Has God abandoned me? Has God forgotten about me? Does God even care? And yes, we know up in our heads that God is sovereign and God is in control and that God is powerful. But sometimes where it really hits us in our hearts, we have a hard time understanding where God is. So here's our big idea for today. And it really relates to Christ and the gospel. Here's the big idea from Genesis chapter 8 and the first part of Genesis chapter 9. Since Christ died as a sacrifice for our sins, we should worship him for his faithfulness. For his faithfulness. I really want to focus in this morning on the faithfulness of our God in Christ. Because what we're going to see in Genesis 8 and 9 is worship, sacrifice, and God's faithfulness. And we're going to see a beautiful picture of Jesus and the cross and the gospel. So let's just dive right in and begin reading. Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heaven was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put his hand out and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days, and he sent forth a dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 
hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, and the waters were dried from the, off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that's with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your life, blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth, and multiply in it. Now this account's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Noah's been in the ark. It's rained. 150 days have passed. The waters subside. He sends out a raven. He sends out a dove. God says, get off the ark. He gets off the ark. He builds an altar. He worships. Pretty straightforward, right? Noah almost emerges as a second type of Adam. God says, start over, be fruitful, multiply, populate the earth. And it's pretty straightforward. But again, I want us to look at this from a Christological or a Christ-centered perspective. So I want to ask three questions of this text this morning, and they all relate to Jesus. Now, you don't see Jesus explicitly in this text, but you see types, and you see shadows, and you see prophecies, and you see analogies and images of Christ all through this. It's pointing forward to the Messiah. So let's ask these three questions. Here's the first question. The first question is, why did Christ have to die on the cross? Now, you may say, Sean, I don't see in Genesis chapter 8 the cross. I don't see Jesus dying. That doesn't show up until the New Testament, until Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What are you talking about, Sean? Well, why, why are you bringing up Jesus dying here in Genesis 8? And yes, I agree with you. We don't see the cross explicitly, but we see here the foundational reason why Jesus had to die on the cross. Look at chapter 8, verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. If you go down to chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, we again see this whole issue of violence and bloodshed and the propensity of humans to be wicked. 
So here's the bottom line answer. If you want to ask the question, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? The bottom line answer is because we are sinful. We are totally sinful and we cannot save ourselves. There's no way we can save ourselves. Many of you have probably heard of the British monk Pelagius. Maybe you've never heard of Pelagius. He lived in the late 300s, early 400s. He was an opponent of Augustine. There's a heresy that's named after Pelagius. It's called Pelagianism. Here's the heresy. Pelagialism is is alive and well today. Here's what the heresy says. It says that humans are not inherently sinful. That we have not inherited a sin nature from Adam. That we are basically a blank slate that we are born neutral, and then we can choose to sin or not sin, all dependent upon our environment and its culturally conditioned. And so there's no such thing as, as original sin from Adam. There's no such thing as total depravity. We're basically a product of our environments. That was denounced as a heresy back in the early church, and it's still a heresy today. The Bible says that we are sinners from the moment of conception. Psalm 51.5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We are conceived in sin. Listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Jeremiah thirteen twenty three. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. What he's saying here is just as a leopard has spots and can't change it, we can't change from from being a a non-sinner if we're already a sinner in the first place. And then listen to Jesus in John 8, 34. Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The scripture here in Genesis 8 says that man's evil intention is there from his youth, there from childhood. And so the moment that we're conceived, the moment that we come out of our mother's womb, we are sinners. We are rebels. We are engrossed in sin. We are enslaved to sin. We cannot get ourselves out of this sin. We can't do enough good to somehow make up for all the sin that we've done. We are totally sinners. And so that's the, that's the, the answer to the question, why did Christ have to die, is because we are sinners. Now let's get to the second question, because I think that one's pretty obvious. The second question, what did Christ sacrifice on the cross actually accomplished for us. And again, you may say, I don't see the cross here in Genesis 8 and 9. I want to show you a type and a shadow and a foreshadowing of the cross. Look at verse 20 in chapter 8. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma... The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, do you find this interesting that Noah emerges from the ark and he builds an altar and he offers burnt offerings of clean animals? This is way before the Ten Commandments. This is way before Moses. This is way before Leviticus. Way before the the law of Moses is given as to how this is supposed to happen. But you go back to Cain and Abel, And you find out from the very beginning 
that God requires some type of a sacrifice. If you remember, Abel brought the firstborn of his flocks, and it was pleasing to the Lord. And here, the first time we ever see the word altar mentioned in the Bible, Noah builds an altar. Now, we have to ask the question, why is the very first thing that Noah does when he comes out of the ark, and we don't have an explicit instruction that God says, build the altar, why does Noah do a burnt offering sacrifice? What is Noah thinking? Well, here's the issue. Noah understands the need for an atonement. Noah understands the need for a sacrifice. He understands two things about God. Noah understands two things about God that we see pictured in this substitutionary sacrifice that Noah does on the altar. Here's the first one. Noah understands that we need a mediator. We need a go-between. We need someone to stand in the gap between sinful humans and a holy God. Notice that the words used there, Noah offered clean animals. Clean animals. This is a foreshadowing of what Israel would have to do in offering clean animals, but ultimately it's a foreshadowing of who? Jesus Christ is the only one who was clean, the only one who was pure, the only one who was righteous, the only one that never sinned. He's the ultimate clean one. He never sinned. He's the only appropriate sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. The writer says, We do not have a high priest, speaking about Jesus, who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is without sin. He's the only clean one. And notice what Timothy says in 1 Timothy 2, 5-6. For there is one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So the first thing notice Noah understands is that there needs to be a go-between. There needs to be a mediator. There needs to be a, a substitute between sinful humans and a holy God. And in that time, and in that period of redemptive history, it was a clean animal, picturing ultimately Jesus as the only clean one to stand in our place. But Noah also understands something else. He understands that God's wrath against sin needs to somehow be propitiated or appeased or taken care of. God's wrath against sin sin. Now, the text doesn't tell us here that God gave Noah instructions on how to do this, but what had Noah just experienced? What did God just do? God wiped out the entire earth because of sin. And for 150 days floating in that boat, Noah's thinking to himself, that could have very easily have been me if not for the grace of God, because I'm just as sinful as everybody else. And so when Noah comes off the boat, he realizes that, yes, I've been saved by grace. I've been saved from the flood, but I'm a sinner nonetheless. And my righteousness is as filthy rags, and that I need to have a burnt offering. And think about the burnt offering here. Why a burnt offering? Do you know what happens in a burnt offering? Everything on that altar is consumed. It's burned up. It disappears. It's a picture of what Jesus does to our sin. 
When Jesus takes our sin, he takes all of it. He consumes all of it. He bears all of it. Think about this. All of God's anger righteously against our sin came barreling down upon Jesus in our place, and he took all of it. Nothing was left out. God held nothing back. He, he brought the punishment that we deserved upon Jesus in our place. He, pray, he paid the price in full. Listen to Romans 3, 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. That, that word just means that Jesus took the wrath of God. Jesus took the punishment of God in our place so that we wouldn't have to experience it. And when the picture of the burnt offering, when, when that whole sacrifice was burnt up, it's a picture of what Jesus did to our sin. He burned it all up in himself on the cross. But notice else that you see here. It was a pleasing aroma. Verse 21, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. In other words, God was pleased with the sacrifice of Noah. When the burnt offering and the smoke went up from the burnt offering, it was a pleasing aroma to the Father. It pleased God. Do you realize that when Jesus died on the cross... And all of God's anger came upon Jesus. And all of our punishment for sin came upon Jesus. And Jesus died as our substitute. And Jesus cried out at his finish. And Jesus suffered in our place. It was pleasing to God. It was a pleasing aroma to God. As a matter of fact, that's what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 2. And walk in love as God, or as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Even in the Hebrew language, in the original language here, that word pleasing aroma, it really has the idea of appeasing God's wrath. It really means a, a cessation of strife, that it brought rest, it brought peace. The whole idea that when Jesus died upon the cross, the, the warfare between sinful humans and a holy God was, was brought to peace because of Christ in our place. Listen to what Isaiah says. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The Lord laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. Hebrews 9, 12, speaking of Jesus, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So pictured here in this story with Noah, We've got two issues related to the gospel. Number one, Jesus had to die because we were so sinful. But number two, Jesus was glad to die because it appeased the wrath of the Father and it brought us peace. It brought us into a right relationship. He took the punishment we deserved. But it leads it to a third question. Here's the third question. In light of Christ's sacrifice for our sins, then how should we worship him for his faithfulness? 
what, what's our response? How should we worship him? If he's done this, if he's saved us, if he's appeased God's righteous justice against us, then what should our response to that be? And it all boils down to God's faithfulness. We see three primary reasons in this passage why we should worship God for his faithfulness. We've just finished up Thanksgiving and we're moving into Christmas and during this time of year we focus on being thankful, worshiping God for his faithfulness. Here's the first reason. Number one, God remembered Noah. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Don't you find that interesting? God remembered Noah. Now, it's not as if God forgot about Noah. It's not like all of a sudden God is kind of going along. He's like, oh yeah, Noah, he's been on that ark for 150 days. I kind of forgot about him. Oh yeah, there he is. That's not what that word means in the original language. What that word means is not the way we use it, like, oh yeah, I forgot, but I remembered. It means that God was faithful to his promise to Noah. It represents faithfulness, his covenant promise. And when you trace that word remembered, when God remembers, when you trace that term all throughout the Old Testament, it's almost always related to his salvation. God remembered his people. God remembered their cries. God remembered their grief. Think about the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. The cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, when it says God remembered the covenant, again, it's not as if he forgot. It's this whole idea that the people of Israel were crying out to God. They were crying in anguish. They were crying in slavery. And God looks down and says, I remember you. I remember my promise. I remember my covenant. I haven't forgot about you. I'm going to be faithful to my promise. And so here's the issue. When you feel beaten up by the world, when you feel in anguish, when you feel like you've been abandoned, when you feel like things aren't going your way, when you feel like the whole world's crashing in upon you, just remember this, God remembers. God has not forgotten about you. God has not abandoned you. God will never leave or forsake you. God remembers you. Psalm 42, 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God for I shall again praise him, my salvation. Many of you may be experiencing this morning anxiety. Many of you this morning may be experiencing turmoil, fear, doubt, depression. There's just an angst in your soul that you can't quite put your finger on, or maybe there's something looming on the horizon that's gotten you where this weight is on your shoulders. And the psalmist says, why are you so cast down? Hope in God. Look to God. Remember that God remembers you. Psalm 136, 23. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever. God remembers. You may think God forgot. You may have tried to send a bunch of emails to God and think they went into his... Spam. God has not forgotten. God is there. He remembered 
Noah. What's the second reason why we can be thankful for God's faithfulness? Number two, God is absolutely true to his word. Let's keep reading. Let's pick up in chapter 9, verse 8. God is absolutely true to his word. Verse 8, chapter 9. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that's with you, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that's with you. For all future generations, I've set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that's between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember that everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that's on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that's on the earth. God is establishing a covenant here with not only Noah, but with all creation. And God says, here's what I'm going to do. Noah, I'm not asking you to do anything. Animals, I'm not asking you to do anything. This is a one-sided covenant. I am going to make a promise. I'm going to make a covenant that I'm never again going to flood the earth. And how I'm going to make you remember that covenant promise is I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky. And every time you look up and see that rainbow, it will be a visual reminder that I will never again flood the earth. God is true to his word. Now, here's the thing that happens oftentimes. I don't know if you're, if you're like me. When you're struggling, when you're insecure, that's when we forget God's word. That's when we forget the promises of God's word. That's when we forget who we are in Christ. Listen to Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. This is a wonderful passage of scripture. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And let me just ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that every word of God proves true? Every word of it. Every word of God proves true, and he is a shelter to those who need refuge. Do you believe that? And let me ask you a question. How many promises are in the Bible? Too many to count. That's a great answer. Some have said there are 3,000. Others have said there are 5,000. A man named Herbert Lockyer wrote a book called All the Promises of the Bible, and he claims it's 8,000. I'm not going to quibble. Whether it's 3,000, 5,000, or 8,000, that's a lot. It's a lot of promises in the Bible. Here's the question. Have you read those promises? Do you claim those promises, and do you live your life on those promises? Maybe that would be a New Year's resolution. Go through the Bible every day next year and count up how many promises are in the Bible. Maybe we'll have a little contest to see who comes up with over 8,000 at the end of next year. Do you believe what you read? So God remembers, and God is true to his word. But here's a third one, and I need to be careful with this one. I debated whether I was going to put this one in here, but I think we need to deal with it. God gives us signs, quote-unquote, of his providential care and direction. Now, we see two signs in the life of Noah, one that's unrepeatable and one that's perpetual in the life of Noah. 
The first sign that Noah has, this is the unrepeatable, this is the one that's in redemptive history, never to be repeated again. This is the sign of the dove and the olive branch. What happens to Noah? He sends out a raven first. Why a raven? A raven's an unclean bird. It's unfit for, for, for sacrificing and it's unfit for eating. Basically, it's, in, it's dispensable. If it gets lost or whatever, who cares? Sends out a raven. Raven comes back. Sends out the dove. Now, what does the dove bring back? A freshly plucked olive branch. Now, those of you that know your Bible are probably thinking to yourself, where do I see the imagery of a dove and an olive branch coming together? It's a picture of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. When kings and prophets were anointed, they were anointed with olive oil. And what was used to be the fuel for the, for the lights and the candlestick in the temple and the tabernacle? It was fuel from the olive. So when you think about this picture, for Noah, it was a visual symbol of God's protection. It was visibly a dove and visibly an olive branch, but we don't need to be going around looking for doves and olive branches because we've got the Holy Spirit. We've got the presence of the Holy Spirit. We've got the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives as a sign to guide us. Romans 5, 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So we've got today the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And let me just give you a side note. As great as the Holy Spirit is in giving you help, he is called the helper. Not just help. He's a person that just doesn't just give you help. He's the helper to live inside of you, to guide you, and to lead you, and to, and to help you understand God's will for your life. Now, what's the second sign given to Noah? The first sign's unrepeatable, the olive, in, the olive branch in the mouth of the dove. But the second sign is perpetual. It's the rainbow. It's the first covenant sign we have in the Bible. Now, later on, we'll have the covenant sign of circumcision and the covenant sign of Sabbath, but here it's the rainbow. And basically, the Bible doesn't call it a rainbow. It says bow. We use the word rainbow, but the word's bow. It really was used of a warrior's bow, like a bow and arrow. And it's the picture of God's warrior bow in heaven at rest because it's no longer fighting against the earth. It's a visual reminder that God will never flood the earth again. And so when you look up and you see the rainbow, it should do two things to you. It should be, number one, thank you, Lord, that you're never going to flood the earth, but it should also remind you that he flooded the earth once, but the second time it's going to be with fire. And I need to be in Christ, saved from my sins, so that I don't experience the judgment to come a second time. So it should bring us joy when we see a rainbow, but it should also sober us into thinking that there's coming judgment at the end of the age. Now, here's the question. Do we go around looking for signs today? Do we, like, get to the proverbial tea leaves out? Or do we look up and think that we're going to see signs in the heaven? Or does God use what's called providence to guide our paths? I've met many Christians that live in fear and confusion because they're trying to find signs in their life to give them direction. And they often wonder, did I read the sign right? 
And here's the scary thing that I've seen a lot of Christians do. I've actually had men come into my office who are having affairs on their wives saying, God brought her to me as a sign because he wants me to be happy. So you can justify whatever sin you want to do because God gave you a sign. I walked down the street and there was a beautiful girl and that was just a sign that I'm supposed to be happy. So I'm going to cheat on my wife because God gave me a sign. We can be really crazy with all these types of signs. I don't have time to go into it right now, but if you want to listen to a really good sermon, I've posted it on our website from Vody Bauckham back on 8-26-2011, Discerning God's Will. Sometimes we as Christians act like pagans when it comes to signs. Hepatoscopy. Anybody know what hepatoscopy is? It was some of the earliest ways that Christians, quote-unquote, tried to figure out God's will for their lives. They would get the liver of a dead sheep and kind of touch the liver to see what direction it gave. And so you would get God's direction from livers. Anybody know what phrenology is? Reading the future by the bumps on your head. Some Christians have done that. What do we have today? Lottery tickets. Tea leaves, psychic friends networks, horoscopes, fortune cookies, or whatever else that you want to make up to discover God's plan. And here's what's scary. A lot of Christians are buying into this nonsense. They are. And then sometimes you can use the Bible as a magic book. You're kind of like, oh, I need to, which way is the wind blowing? Let me open up the Bible. Okay, Judas went and hanged himself. Okay, that doesn't make quite sense. What you're about to do, do quickly. Okay, God must want me to go commit suicide. Okay, what do you want me to do here? Okay, so you've got this kind of magic book thing. So here's the thing. Here's the question. Does God give signs today? We've got to be very careful how we answer that question. I will attempt to answer it. First and foremost, God has given us a completed Bible. Genesis to Revelation with everything that we need to know and believe in order to live according to God's plan. So he's given us everything that we need to know in his scriptures. And God has also given us his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. God has also given us good Christian friends to come alongside us and counsel us. And God has also given us minds to use to have common sense. So should you go around looking for signs... Probably not. But does God give you signs? Sometimes. It's called providence. Providence is something we don't talk a lot about as Christians. What is providence? Here's providence. Providence is God's continuous involvement with his creation, whereby he preserves and governs all his creatures from the greatest to the least, so that in accord with his perfect will and design, he sovereignly orders everything he has made to accomplish everything he intends for his glory. In other words, providence means that God is sovereignly orchestrating your steps and orchestrating events in your life to bring about his desired end. So here's the thing that will free you up as a Christian. If you sin or if you get off track, or if you somehow make a bad mistake, have you been written off forever? Are you out of God's plan? Are you out of God's will? Have you messed up God's roadmap for your life? No. God just simply orchestrates things and moves you back on the path that he wants you to be on. So you don't have to live in fear. You don't have to be superstitious. You don't have to be looking for all these weird premonitions. Here's what you need to do. Read your Bible. 
pray, ask for wisdom of the Holy Spirit, get some good Christian friends around you, use common sense, and then if it's not illegal, immoral, unethical, you have freedom to do it. And if it happens to be the wrong decision down the road, it's not the end of the world. God in his providence will get you back to where he wants you to be. Ephesians 1.11 says this, In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, here, now some of you may be saying, now wait a minute, Pastor Sean. I've had those gut feelings. And I've had those premonitions. And I've seen those signs. And I would say, yes, God in his kindness may do that. There may be somebody that's driving down the road and you're thinking about sinning and all of a sudden a song comes on the radio that addresses the sin that you're dealing with. That's God's way of being gracious to you. Or maybe you see a bumper sticker that reminds you or God brings a friend into your life. God does use those things, those signs. God brings events, people, things into your life to give you words, to give you encouragement. But, but ultimately, it's got to center back in with the Bible. So here's God's ultimate concern for your life. Not that you walk around trying to figure out signs. The ultimate thing for you is, do you believe what's clearly revealed? Because if God has clearly given you what he wants you to know, are you believing this first? And if somebody comes and gives you a sign or, or you see something out there, does it match up with what the word of God says? That's the ultimate issue. So don't stress. I've, I know a lot of Christians that stress because they're looking for signs. Have I read the signs right? Have I read the tea leaves right? My horoscope, blah, 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 blah. Just sit back, relax. Read the Bible. Pray. Surround yourself with good Christian friends. Use common sense. And then if you disobey or somehow you make the wrong choice, it's not the end of the world. God in his sovereignty is going to work out all things according to the counsel of his will and he's going to orchestrate your life to get you back to where you need to be. Now, that's not an excuse to go out and sin, but it takes a lot of the pressure off. Now, here's a recap for this morning. Number one, you and I are so wicked that Jesus had to die for us. Number two, Christ has so powerfully absorbed God's wrath in his cross that he's taken away our sin that we can be accepted. And number three, God is faithful. God is faithful to his word. God remembers us. And God in his graciousness gives us signs along the way. Now, you may think, well, that's all fine and great, Sean. But here's a response. Here's a response. It's very powerful. I think it's very powerful in chapter 8, verse 1. God remembered Noah. But how often do we fail to remember God? Think about Noah for a moment. Noah could have very easily jumped off the ark, gathered up his family and said, we're going to go start our plans. We're going to go start our new world. We're going to be so excited that we finally see dry land that they're going to venture off into all these new plans and projects and they're going to go along as business as usual and they're going to jump off that boat and start going for things and totally forget God. What's the very first thing that Noah does when he gets off the ark? He gathers his family around a sacrifice, picturing Jesus, and he worships God. He slows down. Before anything else, he slows down and says, first and foremost, we as a family are going to remember God and his faithfulness. We're going to slow down. So I want you to think about this Christmas season. Will you slow down? 
That may be hard for some of us to slow down and to stop and say, this Christmas, I'm going to be like Noah and I'm going to gather my family. I'm going to gather the people that are in my life and we're going to sit at the foot of the cross like Noah did. And though Noah sacrificed clean animals as a picture of the only clean sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the only one that can take away our sins, and we're going to sit at the foot of the cross this Christmas season and we're going to remember Jesus. And we're going to bask in God's presence and bask in God's power. And we're not going to venture off into our plans and everything that we've got on our agenda. We're just going to stop. And we're going to remember God. And here's the thing that happens. As you remember God, God remembers you. And he will fill you with the joy of his presence. And you will have the joy of your salvation and you will have the joy of the confidence of knowing that Christ is your Savior. And this Christmas season, you can have joy in Christ as you remember God who remembers you. So don't forget Jesus. You might think, that's a weird statement, Sean. Don't forget Jesus. I'm not going to forget Jesus. How often do we forget Jesus? How often do we put him to the side How often do we just kind of chart off and do our own thing? How often do we try to justify our actions and think that God will catch up with us? How often do we just stop and say, today, my focus is on Christ and his cross and his sacrifice for me, and I'm going to live in the joy of that, and I'm going to be on God's agenda. Before I do anything else, I'm going to pause, and I'm going to worship, and I'm going to remember my God. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And maybe you're here this morning and you've forgotten Jesus. And you know what I mean when I say that. You've put him in your back pocket. You've put him on a shelf. You've somehow just said, well, I can live however I want. I can do whatever I want. And I hope one day at the end of my life, Jesus will just kind of forgive me because that's the kind of God he is. And really, I just want to be happy. And you don't understand that Jesus Christ is Lord and he demands ultimate allegiance. And he's not going to give his glory to another. So would you come this morning to the foot of the cross to find the only clean and acceptable sacrifice, Jesus, who died in the place of sinners so that we could be acceptable to God? And would you confess him as your Lord? Would you confess him as your Savior? And would you come before him in repentance this morning, asking for that cleansing? The Bible says God is faithful. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You can be cleansed this morning. You can be forgiven this morning by confessing your sins to Christ and coming to him alone for salvation. Let's not forget Jesus this Christmas season. Let's slow down. Let's pause. Let's worship. Spend a few moments this morning just doing that, taking just the moments to pause and to worship Jesus this morning. Father, you tell us in Romans chapter 12 to 
our lives to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you, which is our spiritual act of worship. And we want our lives to be a pleasing aroma to you. We want to be those that worship you passionately, Jesus, for your sacrifice for us. We're so thankful that you remember us. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that feels abandoned, that feels insecure, maybe they're not on a deserted island with a volleyball friend, but maybe, Lord, they just emotionally, they're on a deserted island. Father, would you come and meet them right where they are this morning? And would you minister grace and peace and hope to a hopeless heart this morning. Give them the confidence that comes from the Lord. Give them the security of the Lord. Give them hope in your name this morning. Lord, for others that may have been just kind of living their lives as if they've forgotten you, Jesus. They're living however they want, kind of acknowledging you by saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, but their lifestyle or however they're, they're living just doesn't match up. Father, would you just bring, bring a sense of repentance in hearts this morning that we would remember you, Jesus, not just at Christmas, but every day of our lives. And we're thankful for your word, the power of your word, the covenant of your word, that your word is true. Every word proves true, Lord. May we claim those promises of Scripture. And Lord, thank you for those kind providences where you bring us a word from someone or you, you show us something that we didn't see and it guides us in, in your providence to, to, um, to be obedient. And we weren't even expecting those things, but they just kind of showed up right in front of us as a way to startle us. Thank you for those kind. Those are kind, Lord, because you don't want us to continue on the path. You, you bring those into our lives to get our attention. So thank you for that. So, Father, whatever you need to do this morning in our hearts, would it be all for your glory? And as we sing the song, Glory to God Forever, there's that line. It says, take my life and let it be all for you and for your glory. Take my life and let it be yours. Let that be our prayer this morning, Lord. You take our lives and let them be for your glory. Take my life and let it be yours. Let let that be what our, our hope is this morning, Lord, is that our lives would be for your glory and your glory alone take our lives. We do not own our lives. We have no hold upon our lives. They are yours to take and do with what you will. So help us to willingly come and lay ourselves on the altar to be burnt up and used for you in an act of worship with our lives. And the only way we can do that is because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Thank you, Jesus, for burning up all of God's wrath in your body that we wouldn't have to experience it. We praise you and we love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.